वेलकम टू सिंटॉक सिंटॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द पैटर्न्स एंड डिस्ट्रीब्यूशंस विल थिंक अबाउट पैटर्न्स इन वेरियस रेल्म्स वाइल वंडरिंग व्हाई दे एग्जिस्ट व्हाट दे इंप्लाई हाउ डज नियर इनफाइनाइट वैरायटी इमर्ज do patterns in one system tell us anything about the world in general do they tell us more about structures or entities is the distribution of say prime numbers random can they be one way of understanding all patterns what kind of patterns are more likely are pattern generating programs more likely to be small and fast rather than large and slow Are some languages truly more complex than others? And what is the long-term future of our understanding in this context? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Krishna Swami Alladi is a professor of mathematics at University of Florida. His area of research is analytic number theory and more recently theory of partitions inspired by the work of Ramanujan. Dr. Manoj Gopal Krishnan is in the Department of Electrical Engineering at IIT Bombay. His interests are in the overlap between computer science and biology. specifically in the connections of uh, information statistics learning and evolution and dr avinash pandey who's in the department of linguistics at university of mumbai he studies patterns of language use which lies at the intersection of social sciences humanities and the natural sciences so professor ladi why don't we set the ball rolling with you um at a somewhat general place of uh, what a pattern is for a mathematician um of course one has an intuitive sense for it and i would imagine that almost everybody would share a reasonably common sense of what a pattern is but what is it for you as a mathematician what is a pattern so let me first say that the driving force behind the pursuit of mathematics is actually uh appreciation of beauty in mathematics and to a large extent beauty is the observation or the establishment of patterns right but then what is what is a pattern from a mathematical point of view a pattern is a common feature you can broadly say it's a common feature in a collection of objects that you're either able to observe or you're able to establish mm-hmm. sometimes it need not be a feature for a collection of objects it could also be a striking symmetry of a particular object yes where by symmetry i mean something that is invariant under transformations right so the word pattern can be used in somewhat general terms but we have an idea when we talk about pattern in a collection of objects or pattern or symmetry about a specific object yeah 
And what do you mean when you say transformations? Transformations could either be algebraic transformations or geometric transformations. So to give an example... The geometric one is probably easier to understand what is an algebraic transformation. Yes, because transformation. we are able to observe visualize shapes, it. visualize. Yeah. So for example, if you take a, a square... And you rotate the square by 90 degrees yep. about the center, you get back the same square in terms of the position. Yep. So that is, it's, so rotation through 90 degrees is a transformation. It yep. can also be represented algebraically, but geometrically we understand what it is. So that's a symmetry that the square has, which mm -hmm. a rectangle, for instance, doesn't have. A rectangle, if you rotate by 90 degrees, you get a, rect a rectangle, but in a slightly different position. Yeah. That's what we mean by a symmetry of an object. And the more symmetries the object possesses, chances are that this object will arise in fundamental ways in different settings. So, for example, the object which perhaps possesses the most symmetry in this respect is the circle. <laughs> you can rotate it through any angle and the circle remains invariant. Right. And clearly, it is that symmetry of the circle which is responsible for motion. You can't use any other geometric aspect or object, for example, to create a wheel for things to move. It is this rotational, perfect rotational symmetry of the circle which is the cause of it. So when you say that one... Let's, let's say one mathematical object is, let's say, for lack of a better phrase, more symmetric than the other. And in a way, you're kind of extending that to say that it probably implies that there's something more universal or fundamental to the occurrence of that mathematical object. And it's likely to pop up in more places than the less symmetric one. But why is that? It is because in most instances, we are performing transformations. Mm -hmm. Whether it is due motion or infinitesimal way to understand uh, objects, always some sort of transformation is taking place. And therefore, the objects which are invariant under these transformations will play a dominant role in the, in, in the deterministic nature of that system. Sure. Uh, or you can try to express the less symmetric objects in terms of the more symmetric objects. Sure, sure, right. sure. Well, I think we're opening some flanks there and we'll get back to the core yeah. idea of numbers, which is where uh, I'm sure you'll have something interesting to say. If we jump to the world of languages, Avinash, um, are how patterned are languages? Of course, um, at a high level, there's dizzying variety and crazy complexity. Um, but what are the patterns that underlie languages, some of them, and what's, 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 what's common to them? Uh, relating to what Professor Aladi said, uh, study of language is observation of patterns. Or even, uh, for that matter, learning a language is learning the patterns. Mm -hmm. okay. So you're saying language use itself is either implicitly yes. or explicitly an understanding fact, of patterns. In fact, if it was not patterned, it communication would not be possible. Mm -hmm. Because uh, when I'm communicating with you, I'm conveying my thoughts to which uh, I have only I have access to you. If there were no patterns, there is no way you could access my thoughts. Unless we share a pattern, a system which is patterned. In what sense are you using the word pattern here? 
Uh, patterns. Because why do we need to share only patterns? I mean, there are other words that come to mind. So, like, so whatever you share would have a pattern. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, so by pattern I mean that when uh, the possible logical outcomes and actual outcomes do not match. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you have five words, mm-hmm. how many possible combinations can you create? Right, mm-hmm. uh, you can create n number of combinations, but actual language use would never have all those combinations. So, if there were only five words in a language, right? Um, obviously, they could be. Yeah, so you're saying all those combinations don't exist. Why is don't that? exist in language because language uh, is governed by patterns. If all the possible combination existed, mm-hmm. communication would not be possible. I don't understand why. Because then you wouldn't exactly know which particular, uh, what that particular combination is conveying. Mm-hmm. Okay. So are you saying that the pattern, for example, puts a restriction in the order in which, for instance, some the words can are be arranged. used? Yes. So you can't just say if you have five words, the total number of permutations of these five words is five factorial. Sure. That doesn't yes. mean all 120 sentences makes sense. The pattern forces that certain combinations so, uh, are allowable and certain combinations uh, are not allowable in so sequence example, and therefore cuts down the number of... But then yeah. we're getting into issues of grammar and structure and yeah, so grammar is basically and syntax. Uh, grammar is basically study of patterns underlying language use. Right. That's basically grammar. Okay, and that is why uh, we can learn a language without being taught a language because we are we can just observe the patterns and acquire the grammar yeah that's a beautiful point right so uh, children for example acquire language before the age of 5 mm-hmm. they are not taught language in fact you cannot teach language to a child even mm-hmm. if you try you cannot do it mm-hmm. uh, parents would identify with the fact that they have tried to correct the child and the child refuses to be corrected because a child has observed a particular pattern. So there's a way of imbibing the rules without actually interpreting them. You just understand it directly in some way. Yes. And are, and are all languages broadly similar in, in their patterns? Broadly similar means uh, they are different and similar both. Mm-hmm. So they can be reduced to a degree of similarity. Which are what? Uh, for example, uh, uh, I can give you one pattern which is observed in all languages mm-hmm. that uh, the subject of the sentence mm-hmm. would always come first. Okay. Right. Now that this itself creates a gap in the possible logical outcomes. Correct. Correct? Correct. So when you are receiving information, when I'm saying something, the f- uh, in, a, in, a, in a canonical sentence, you would interpret the first element of my sentence as a subject. Even before you utter the remaining or even before yes. I read the remaining. Otherwise, if the I give subject, you... Subject, verb, object or subject, object, verb, but it kind yes. of starts with the subject, subject. anyway. Right. So that's a, that's a fundamental property of human languages. Hmm. Okay? If, if all possible outcomes were there, if I said cat, kill, mouse, you wouldn't know what I'm conveying. Hmm. But once you have a particular... You, you have a particular expectation, those expectations are based on patterns, then... Yeah, communication becomes so much more easier and so much more possible. Sure. And that is why uh, the gap between logical outcomes and actual possibilities relates patterns to distributions. 
Yeah. Okay. So, ever, so you can understand pattern by studying distributions of various elements. Yeah. 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 We'll get back to that linkage again. Manoj, over to you. At 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 a broader level, why do patterns exist at all? Why do they exist in the realm of mathematics? Why do they exist in languages? Why do they exist in the world? Uh, broadly speaking. Yeah. So I guess. Uh, we are all struck when we look out you know on a starry night at the way things are arranged or we look out at nature and we see these intricate patterns in leaves and flowers and biological systems and we can wonder why this is so mm-hmm. and you know a cursory study of science mm-hmm. uh, will take us to ideas like the second law of thermodynamics which says entropy of the universe must always be increasing sure so that suggests disorder should be increasing then how come we are seeing patterns and more order more structure so one answer would be that the universe itself started in a state of low entropy mm-hmm. uh, but even if that happened what we should see would be systems of low entropy but that's not that's that's not the only thing we see we see systems which exhibit sophistication which exhibit very rich patterns and we can wonder why we see such systems and it gets to this question of aesthetics that professor aladi referred to right. you know why do we find beautiful things in nature yeah how is the universe a mechanism to take something ordinary and make it into something beautiful yeah. how is the universe a mechanism to take something nonsensical and create out of it something sensible and meaningful uh so there have been some partial attempts at answers in this direction within computer science uh so the first idea you take is and when you say beautiful manoj uh, just so that we share it in the same sense you mean that in an objective way because or or, or that's very interesting so the danger with giving uh, an objective definition of beauty is that it there is a humanist objection yes. right because if i call something beautiful i'm calling something else ugly right i'm calling something else not as beautiful sure uh but there is a way to transcend that mathematically mm-hmm. because somehow the mathematical definition that will be set down mm-hmm. it will be an objective definition but it won't be usable equally by everybody sure so each person will then be forced to have their personal idea of beauty while attempting to get at this universal definition of beauty which will not directly be accessible by itself but it will exist as a mathematical object Sure. So that's the kind of vision we have for a definition of beauty within computer science. We are not there yet, but there are a few proposals. So let me broadly outline the ideas. Sure. So the first idea is that uh, we will talk about beauty among binary strings. Mm-hmm. You know, so just a language of zeros and ones. Mm-hmm. That's all. Uh, and this is not too ridiculous because you can think of you know art, various kinds of art like photographs or music. in the end you can represent them in computers as binary strings so let's talk about beauty in binary strings um like it's possible to write a program with just zeros and ones and some kind of a halting mechanism and kind of reproduce that you mean it in that sense no i mean it in the literal sense that a photograph mm-hmm. in your can be encoded yeah so. in your phone or in your computer is uh, is a string of zeros and ones sure as is some musical you know symphony in sure. on your phone it's a string of zeros and ones sure so we can look at various strings of zeros and ones for example a string with a lot of symmetry like all zeros mm-hmm. right uh 
a string with uh, no structure at all which i get by tossing a coin a million times mm-hmm. right uh, or a string uh, which encodes the binary digits of pi in its binary expansion or the positions of the prime numbers those strings right so there sure. are three families of strings sure. so strings that are very symmetric strings that are very random and strings that are beautiful in some way sure. so how do we make up a mathematical definition that gets at these beautiful strings that's the question here sure and so i can describe that so in a way in a way we are kind of jumping in the direction of notions of complexity uh yeah i don't like the word complexity i prefer to say sophistication rather than complexity because why is that so complexity if something is hard to understand you call it complex right so random sure. strings are also hard to understand sure. as are beautiful strings sure so both are complex but only one is beautiful hmm so so it's yeah but yes it could be called complexity if you yeah talking about patterns Uh, the observation of patterns actually goes to our ancients uh, manoj was referring to looking at the sky yeah so our ancients looked at the sky lots of stars but they observed constellations yeah so there is a specific grouping of stars that they noticed which is invariant again correct and so the relative positions are invariant yeah but why was that important yeah. like for example you can take orion or you can take ursa major yeah the point is if you observe ursa major let us say at 8 pm yeah and then you observe ursa major at 12 midnight yeah you'd notice that the relative positions between the stars of that constellation has not changed but the constellation itself has rotated a little bit <laughs> something that you could not have observed if you observe a star only in isolation because then you don't know you don't know that it is rotating around something else this is easier if you observe this as a cluster right and then by looking at this movement they came to the conclusion that all of these stars are rotating almost with the pole star as the center right so it is the observation of the pattern of the constellations that led our ancients to come to the conclusion of this rotating property so this is an immediate consequence of the observation of a pattern but but they were initially observed it only because they saw some structure and they were attracted by the beauty of that structure yeah absolutely uh, relating to what uh, professor ladi is saying that uh, observation of patterns uh, fundamentally involves observation of relationship between entities mm-hmm. or in fact uh, we can say that entities are nothing but something which lies at uh, the intersection of various relationships you know where relation is the fundamental right unit or yes. fundamental it's, it's yes. the more fundamental thing so an entity is basically defined by its relationship with and it's not the other way around yes so you don't have entities and then you have relationships they they in somehow they so for example in the context of language right uh, if so you were I to can... atomize it um you know one one kind of st- at least intuitively in a laymanish sense you would say that okay language is made up of alphabet which is a collection of letters which is a b c d e but if we were to take the track that we are taking with what you were saying which is yeah so for example correct, if, if if you were to learn the meaning of a word uh-huh. or if you were to learn a word you would have to learn its relationship with other words in the language 
Right. Without doing, you cannot learn a word in isolation. Yes. Right. So, so, so basically, which when is you, why my question to you, Vinash, is, and we don't need to atomize it, but hmm. is there a way to atomize language then? No. Once you atomize it, mm-hmm. it won't be language anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This so, is why in a dictionary, the meaning of a word is not only given in terms of some similes, but they give it to you in a context in relation right. to many other things. And the meaning of a word can only be given through other words. Yeah. Yeah. And then to understand the meaning of those words, you have to go to other words and other words. So, you know. Right. Okay. So a dictionary assumes that the user knows a few words. So you spoke about the idea and notion of distribution, which I think we should gradually approach yes. now. Uh, so uh, I was going to take this example. For example, if you to understand the meaning of the word pattern, yeah, we'll have to understand what distribution is. Yeah, and we were talking about transformation. Yeah, so uh, or uh, we're talking about invariance. Yeah, or we're talking about relationship. Yeah, these are a constellation of words. Yes, like there is a constellation of stars. Yeah. You, to understand the meaning of these words, you have to understand them as a constellation. Yeah. For as example, a cluster of, yes. Yeah. So, so if you say language is a system, yeah. Basically, how do you? What is a system? A system is an underlying invariance. Yeah. And transformation is only possible in invariant systems. When you asked what is a transformation, so in in linguistics we study transformations within language. Mm-hmm. So, for example, an active and a passive are transformations of each other. That's a great point. Right? Yes. So, so why, do, why are we calling it a transformation? Because both can be reduced to an, the same underlying system of invariance. Right, right, right. Now, if I change tracks a little bit, for example, mm-hmm. and if you think of language and let's stick to English for a brief mm-hmm. while, the fact that we have 26 letters, mm-hmm. is that incidental? Could it have been 29, 32, 19? Um, is there something interesting or deep about the fact that there are 26 letters or it could have been anything? Uh, it couldn't have been anything. Most writing systems, alphabetic writing systems, Yeah. there are other writing systems. Sure. But alphabetic writing systems, an average uh, uh, syllabary or an average number of letters would be around 30. Why is that? It's, uh, it's, the, it's the number of distinctions the language makes. And uh, that number of distinctions is constrained. There is no constraint within the system. So these are phonological uh, yes. distinctions? Uh, yes, or? phonological distinctions, not phonetic dis- distinctions. They are mm. not distinctions between sound, but the distinctions which the language use mm. to discriminate between different words or different mm. linguistic items. Mm. So you cannot have too few number of discriminations mm. and you cannot have a too large number of discriminations. Mm. Mm. Because either of them would not be useful in communication. And is that in any way analogical to the way one thinks of numbers, Professor Ladi? Like, is there anything, again, we happen to work with decimal number systems. Uh, would the uh, I wouldn't be... say more in terms of numbers. I'll say in terms of axioms. Okay. So, just as you construct words uh-huh. using letters or alphabets, uh-huh. and then words are then used to construct sentences. Sure. A mathematical theory starts with a set of axioms you want the axiom set to be consistent, that there should not be any contradictions between them. But at the same time, you cannot have too many axioms with which you start a theory, but you need a core set of axioms. So there is something about the optimality of the number of Again, axioms. Again, not too many, not too few. Correct. So you want to, for example, you want to um, do Euclidean geometry. Uh-huh. 
then you have to have some axioms relating to points axioms relating PNOs, to lines, axioms, axioms relating to what parallel is you have to have a few axioms but you can't have like 40 axioms and create a subject you can maybe have half a dozen so there is it's not clear i'm not giving an, a prescription for the number of axioms but you need so a Abhinash basic thing something like 30 letters you, you're not going in that direction you're not I'm saying i'm not going to that number but usually something like 5 to 6 axioms mm-hmm. in, in that range and then you start building the theory and of course as you build the theory some assumptions have to be made but they are not axioms some conditions have to be put to prove a theorem but the alphabets that you talked about that avinash talked about with which you start any language is like the set of axioms with which you start a mathematical theory right let's go to the world of prime number, numbers in terms of numbers mm. there are also some axioms with which you build numbers that's sure. the piano arithmetic piano axioms so i grant that but they are again axioms sure now we go to the question of prime numbers are prime numbers random why do they exist what are they okay so before we talk about the randomness of primes mm. uh, one point needs to be stressed so we first start with integers or whole numbers mm mm-hmm. and there are two fundamental operations and we do this on a daily basis without really thinking too much about them one is addition and the other is multiplication so again it's this operation which is more fundamental correct than, so, so in any, any set the... you have to have is endowed with certain operations then the set has is interesting you need to study the structure of that set under with this operations mm-hmm. so there are these two fundamental operations among the numbers we mm-hmm. start first with integers mm-hmm. and now the question is how are these two operations related yeah so they to begin with the operations are not they are indistinguishable because addition is commutative multiplication is commutative there is an additive identity there is a multiplicative identity yeah addition is associative multiplication is associative so how do you know which is addition and which is multiplication not just because you use a symbol but you want sure. to fundamentally understand sure and so the difference is that one of these operations distributes over the other so multiplication distributes over addition right but addition doesn't distribute over multiplication so when you have when an you abstract distribute over what do you mean a times b plus c is a times b plus a times c i can take the multiplication a times it can be distributed, distributed over once yes. over b and once over c right right so in an abstract set <laughs> which has got two operations Yeah. The one that distributes over the other plays the role of multiplication and the other right. one plays the role of addition. Right. But that is at a very basic level. But now you want to understand the intricacies of multiplication and that's where the prime numbers come in. So in any system one of the things that we always seek are the basic building blocks. Uh-huh. So you take something like multiplication and then the inverse operation is division. Now you say what are the members of this particular collection integers which cannot be broken or which cannot be divided yeah into smaller bits yeah and that leads you to the concept of a prime number actually the correct phrase first must be irreducible yes the prime property is something else but it 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 turns out it's equivalent in this case yeah. and these are the building blocks because every number is now a product of primes yeah so prime numbers are like your to give a loose analogy like atoms yeah but with respect to the process of multiplication yeah and they are so important because 
Number theory is really the study of the interrelationship and all the consequences that come in the connections between addition and multiplication. And prime numbers are what will really to help you understand the multiplicative structure of the integers. In a sense, the properties of prime numbers are essentially properties of the multiplicative operation, multiplicative and it additive operation. It comes out of that, but, but to understand the difficulty, and mm -hmm. this actually goes back, then we'll take it to a problem in computer science. If I give you a number, it's very easy to write down all its multiples. Like mm -hmm. if I give you a number like six, mm -hmm. the multiples just form an arithmetic progression. Six, 12, 18, 24, sure. and so on. And here on the other side, zero minus six. It's just an arithmetic progression with gap six. But now, by the same token, if I give you a large number and ask you to list the divisors of this number, Defectors. that's a very difficult problem. And that is because to understand the divisors, you need to understand first the prime factors. And that's, that's a fundamentally difficult question. So now this issue about randomness that you raised, yes. Which is linked the, to the question of distribution in a way. Correct. How are prime numbers distributed? So I'm not going to talk about randomness in terms of local and global. Mm -hmm. And that is related to this issue of the pattern of zeros and ones that, um, that Manoj was about. talking about. So prime numbers are, so to speak, random, meaning somewhat unpredictable locally. Uh -huh. So locally means... You take a large number X. So X could be, for instance, uh, 1 billion. Sure. I'm choosing 1 billion, so it's a perfect cube. So, so you, you take a large number like a billion. And then, so let's say X. And then you just go to a small interval near X. So X plus square root of X. It's very difficult to say how prime numbers are distributed within that, that, um, that set, in, in that short interval. But on the other hand, globally, mm -hmm. starting from 1 and going up to a large number X, mm -hmm it's easy to, 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 to talk about results which will give you a good idea of how prime numbers are distributed in this large interval. Therefore, this randomness question of primes is a local phenomenon. More globally, there is actually a fairly regular distribution behavior of primes that comes Makes out. Makes sense to you, Manoj? Yeah. And wh why, why is it the way it is? Uh, yeah, so I guess uh, going back to this idea of you know, axioms and theorems. Mm -hmm. So if you were to try to do this backwards, mm -hmm. if you were to try to write down all the theorems of a subject, say Euclidean geometry, sure. without knowing the axioms, right? Not even all the theorems, just choose your, you know, 10 favorite theorems. Sure. And then you try to figure out what sets of axioms could have given rise to these theorems. In a way, the equivalent of finding the factors or divisors. I suppose, yeah. In it's a, a decomposition problem, Decomposition. Right? Um, yeah, so, for a computer scientist, we would take all those theorems, we would say, oh, here is a binary string yeah. that corresponds to all these theorems. And which computer program is most likely to have produced this binary string? Yes. Okay. So, there are different ways of answering this question, which gives, give us different notions, universal notions of beauty. And that's essentially the idea is, the challenge in coming up with the right definition is to try to figure out what would be the right universal definition that works for many cases, including mathematics, including linguistic, including the arts and so on. So uh, here is one notion. But is there a way to think about this without invoking the notion of beauty? Is there a way of saying that if I notice these bunch of binary strings, as they call them, essentially the question is that is there one program which... 
So the point is there will be many programs. There will be many different programs that will all output this binary string. And I have a choice to make. Which of these should I say is fundamentally responsible for producing this binary string in the real universe out there? So it's something about the universe out there. Right. So so then one has to bring in some ideas from, you know, what is the cost of, for each of these machines, what is the cost of producing this string? And yeah. somehow I want to say the one that is the cheapest is most likely to have produced the string. Why? So I want to give a... Uh, why? Uh, well, so... Is it because it's most optimal? No, I mean, you uh, can just look at the history of the universe, right? So whatever has happened, if I see something in front of me, uh, what am I likely to... What history am I likely to attribute to it, right? If I see food in my lunchbox, the, you know, I'm going to assume somebody put it there, right? As opposed to that I just carried an empty lunchbox and food grew in there, which is also possible. But one tends to take the more plausible explanation. So it's about plausibility of different histories. And so if I think of each history as a computational history, explicitly as some computation being performed, then I just want to say which of these different possible histories is most likely to have produced the present that I'm seeing in front of me. Which means that in a way the implicit assumption, the philosophical assumption or whatever in some sense is that all the the path is most likely most efficient or something like that. Yeah, that's what I meant by optimal. By optimal. I I know one is one runs the risk of making this somewhat uh, somewhat humanistic or anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphic. But there are also things which say that nature often selects. Right. Right. The most optimal. Right. Uh, solution. Yeah, so this is somewhat reminiscent of Feynman diagrams and things like that where different paths are explored, but the path that's going to contribute most heavily to the present is the one that's in some sense optimal. So yes, there is that flavor, but I was avoiding saying that because there can be a certain circularity there. Right. You know, if I can assume Feynman diagrams and so on, then on top of that, I could build an aesthetics, but then the question arises, where did I get... Feynman diagrams from in the first place, right? So <laughs> there is a circularity in trying to make those arguments, which may not be a problem, but it's it's definitely something to keep track of. Right. And is there, uh, is there, if we go to your domain again, Avinash, are all languages equally complex? Before I address your question, there's a couple of things. Uh, Please. Uh, we were discussing about addition and multiplication. Yeah. So something which occurred to me that the way I understood uh, when I was learning my mathematics, addition was making a line. You keep attaching things and you make a line. While multiplication was for me making rectangles. Right. So prime numbers are those numbers out of which you cannot make rectangles. Yeah. Okay. So in that sense, there was a pattern even within prime numbers. Yeah. That I... uh, all numbers do not form rectangles. But do but do these uh, operations make any sense to you as a linguist? Addition and multiplication. Uh, because I, in a way, in a way, we kind of it's helpful to think of them as fundamental operations in the in the in the context of numbers. What would the fundamental operations be in the context of a language? Actually, in language, uh, what we do is uh, there are only three or four kinds of operations we actually perform in language mm-hmm. uh, to construct a sentence uh, out of its constituents. Mm-hmm. So you basically select something, 
and you merge it. If possible, you copy it and also you check it. You check whether the combinations are compatible or not. Right. Okay. So uh, all sentence structures can be seen as a result of these four operations. Mm-hmm. And the constraints on those sentence structures are external constraints. They're not to select, merge, copy, check. Yes. That takes care of all sentences of all human languages. Mm. Multiplication begins by thinking of it as a repetition. Yes. Like even you say four times five. Yes. Right. It's four added to itself five times or five added to itself four times. Sure. That is how it begins. Sure. But yes. later when you abstract its properties, what is square root of two? <laughs> it's a number which when multiplied by itself gives you two, but that multiplication is not repetition. So right. 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 we were talking about relations. Right. So in mathematics, what happens is we first define certain objects or certain operations intuitively. But then afterwards, we extrapolate relations and then we can do things where our original intuition, it goes beyond our original yes. simple intuition. It runs away from there. Yeah. So yeah. that's really but where... But you kind of know that it must be correct, but it's not intuitive anymore. Well, that's why irrational numbers took a long time for human <laughs> beings to accept right. them. Uh, yeah. Another point which uh, I, d- I didn't want to be misunderstood, that when we say the number of letters in a language averages... Right. 30. I did not mean that the number of distinctions in language is around 30. Sure. Because uh, the relationship between number of distinctions a language makes mm-hmm. and letters, mm-hmm. that is writing, is a tenuous relationship. Sure. That is why writing is only done for those people who know a language. You never write for someone who does not know the language. Right. 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 Knowledge of language is essential to read. Right. Right. So in that sense, uh, so somehow people, I am mentioning this specially because somehow people feel that alphabetical writing is uh, the is, is a way of t- uh, noting uh, speech uh, speech distinctions. They are not. not. Right. You can never, in its complete uh, sense, note down all distinctions which we make in speech. Yeah, which 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 yeah, which is very interesting because it kind of links to the idea of numbers and numerals rather. Yes. Because uh, if you just think of how numerals might have come to be, whether it's 0 to 9 or whatever, it kind of presupposes that there has to be some notion of a language before that, which is which is understood even before right. the symbolic forms takes over or something like that. Let's go back to the complexity question because I want yes, to link yeah, it to yeah, what yeah, Manoj yeah. was talking about and we'll see. So are, are all languages equally complex? Uh we haven't yet... How do you measure complexity? Yeah, that, for that's language? the point. How do we measure complexity? Mm. And uh, the problem becomes even more complex, if, mm. if I was to say. Because language is not one system. It is a system of systems. Right. So uh, you may you may with some degree of uh, robustness say that, for example, phonology of a language mm-hmm. is uh, more, less complex than phonology of another language. Mm-hmm. But is the language in its complete sense more complex? Mm-hmm. Because the, the morphology of that language... Maybe more, more complex. Maybe way more complex. Or the syntax may be more complex. Right. 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 So overall complexity, how do we measure overall complexity? That so what would those parameters be? Phonology, morphology, syntax? Syntax, yes. So basically, uh, all those things which relate sound to meaning. Yes. And the intermediate levels. Now, those intermediate levels, the, the job of the, uh, the intermediate... But are all languages phonological? Yes. 
when you say all languages are phonological all natural means, languages of yeah. course one is excluding the kind of stuff that no, uh, even manoj would do all languages are uh, in some sense they have a system of distinctions sure uh, i'm not only saying natural languages sure sure and manoj when you invoke the binary environment which you've done a few times which is very interesting uh, do you mean that in the sense of a heuristic or you mean that in a somewhat ontological fundamental sense like can you create the universe out of a binary environment uh, i don't need and, that when stronger i say universe position. i mean everything so yeah so One, i i don't need that stronger position mm-hmm. it is uh, sufficient for me to be able to say that uh, there is some kind of indistinguishability the sense that you have your system say you you are looking out of your window uh-huh. and i give you some kind of a representation of what you can see out your window uh-huh. but my representation was created using zeros and ones and if you can't distinguish what you are seeing out the window from what i'm showing you and you can't tell which of those is the real window then i that's would that's good enough yeah i would say that's good enough yeah but fundamentally what would be different between the two why 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 do you want to even make that distinction between representation i understand it from a process of construction one gets it on a bottoms up basis so i mean saying that the world is made up of zeros and ones right now as it's we jarring. know it's no, jarring it's not about jarring like what we know of fundamental physics it's not consistent with it but if you were to say that the world is made up of qubits now that is something that is more believable to many people and that has been seriously proposed in fact people are trying to explore uh, how to you know do fundamental physics from the ground up using just notions of qubits which are yeah quantum notions of bits sure and if you think of numbers uh, prasaladi is there going back to the decimal and the number system question again is 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 that just arbitrary is that just a matter of convention that we happen to use uh, 0 to 9 and would prime numbers be different if we were using uh, other number systems and would the results hold more importantly of course the numbers would be different so the use of the decimal system is really motivated by efficiency in computation uh-huh i mean before the decimals system came in i mean you had the roman numerals sure so the romans did were able to represent a number like sure. 23 or 31 sure but they they could not do arithmetic they could not do these operations Sure. using those roman symbols representing those numbers that's because notations didn't exist as you were talking well, about well no no but it's also important i think the key thing that came up in the decimal system was the realization by the hindus that you also have to represent the non appearance of a digit <laughs> and that's where the zero came zero came right so for example when you write 101 yeah means 10 to the power of 1 does not appear in the representation but it is given a rightful place so it's like a chair that chair empty. has to be occupied only by 10 to the power of 1 if it doesn't appear you leave that chair unoccupied but you don't put something else in that chair yeah so that realization is a very fundamental realization by the hindus and that is what led to this decimal representation which actually enabled rapid computation you could multiply and so on right so that's where the decimal representation comes and you could also use representation base 5 where 5 is a prime number Absolutely. it doesn't alter yeah only thing is the 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 representation will look different yeah now with regard no, to your question about primes and so on or yeah. or any other aspect let's say a perfect square yeah 
a perfect square integer will remain a perfect square regardless of whether we represent it base 10 or base 5. So there are what are called absolute properties mm -hmm. of numbers. Mm -hmm. And these absolute properties do not depend upon the base representation of the number. The base representation is just for us to start computing. So a number like 29 is prime regardless of whether you represented base 10 or base 2 or base 3. So a lot of the theorems that we prove about numbers is really independent of the base in which that number is represented. However, sometimes we can use a base representation to help us with the proof. That doesn't mean that that is absolutely needed. Yeah, okay. that's an so a lot of these are absolute properties. A number is prime, it's just prime. It has nothing to do with any base representation. Mm. Mm. And 10, I suppose, came in because we have 10 fingers and they started counting. I mean, I, I, I'm not a historian, but I think that's how it came about. And ultimately, the computer scientists told us the most efficient would be the smallest integer bigger than one, and that's two. So let's <laughs> represent everything base two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And why are, why are, again, it's a question posed to all of you, why are some patterns more likely? Why do some patterns recur more? And it kind of started off in a way by saying that if, 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 if a mathematical object is more symmetric than the other, then it's likely to turn up a lot more often. And we kind of used it, linked it to the notion of transformations and others. But clearly there are patterns and there are patterns and there are patterns. But some patterns recur a lot more often in nature and all kinds of systems than, than the others. Is there a way to think of that question in your context, Avinash? Yes. Uh, one, uh, there are several answers to this question. But one answer which I can immediately think of yeah. is that, uh, for example, there are some patterns in the way uh, words are composed out of speech sounds. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, there is a very strong pattern uh, which uh, which occurs because it goes very close to the way nature uh, or sounds pattern themselves. For example, uh, if I was to talk about sonority of uh -huh. a sound, right? So sonority of a sound uh, to uh, put it in a in a very intuitive sense is uh, how freely the sound flows in your vocal tract. Right. The more freely it flows. The more, the more likely, sonorous the sound is. Yes. Right? So vowels will be more sonorous than per or t because there is a the sound is blocked. Yeah. Or s or z. Yeah. So the way uh, you, you, you just you just take any word and check its sonority hierarchy. Uh-huh. The, the word will start with the least sonorous sound. Uh-huh. And the sonority will rise. Uh-huh. Peak in the vowel. Uh -huh. And the sonority will fall. What do you mean by that? Take a word like uh, peacock. Uh, okay, I, I'll take a simple word. You pick your peacock, word. Peacock. Okay, peacock. I'll uh, <laughs> priest, priest, which is just one syllable. Sure. So you start with per, pr, pr. So per and r, yeah. which is more sonorous. Yeah. R is more sonorous. Right. Then you have e, uh -huh. and then the s and the t. So the least sonorous sounds are the sounds at the edges. Mm -hmm. And the most sonorous sound, which is the vowel, occurs in the at the center. So, is there something to be said about said about the distribution of vowels? Yes. So, vowels are always from the peak. What are vowels? Of course, one knows the examples and instances of vowels. I, I, what I, are I, vowels? I did, Why do they exist? Uh, so, vowels are those sounds which are produced without any obstruction in the vocal tract. Uh huh. And consonants are those sounds which involve some degree of obstruction in the vocal tract. Uh huh. Right. 
So R, for example, R is very vowel-like because even when we are obstructing the vocal tract, sound is flowing simultaneously. Right. But E, E, for example, there is no clear obstruction in the vocal tract. Right. Right. So. Right. So it feels like vowel should have some kind of predictable distribution in in, in all languages, irrespective of uh, which one it yes, is. Yes, that's what I was saying. That take a particular syllable, the vowel will always be the peak of the. It will be the most sonorous sound in that syllable, and it will before the vowel and after vowel, there will be less sonorous sounds. There will be less sonorous sounds before so, and after vowels. So, if we were to capture all the text that is written out there and all the words that have ever been uttered, are vowels most likely to be the peak, the heart of the syllable? The, but the I'm talking of the notion of frequency. One is the position in the word. Yes, but just the frequency of the utterance of vowels or the frequency of use of vowels. Of particular vowels or vowels in general. Both. That I wouldn't be able to uh, predict which will occur more mm-hmm. consonants or vowels. Mm-hmm. Because some languages have more consonants, some languages have more vowels. The number of vowels in a language and the number of consonants, the ratio varies across languages. Sure, but if you were to think of something like Zipf's law, for example, which is different, where we are mixing letters and everything. Yes. Uh, if we were to again think of things at a systemic level. Um, yeah. So that's what I was trying to say. That now it it makes much more sense to construct a syllable where the sonority rises and then falls. So you get a nice pattern. Mm. Otherwise, mm. there's a rise, fall, rise, fall, rise, fall. It will be very difficult to produce that that particular syllable or the word. Mm. Mm. What is language to you as a computer scientist? So maybe before that, I'd like to go back to the previous question. Please. Sort of where do patterns come from? Yes. Right? That's the fundamental question yeah, anyway, Manoj. Yeah. In fact, he illustrated the you know the answer that he gave uh-huh. in terms of vowels and consonants. Does fall? It's a very nice illustration, I think, of what I'm also trying to say. Please. Uh, which is that somehow the probability of seeing one particular pattern rather than another one uh-huh. sort of depends on the cost of producing that pattern. Right. Right. So that's essentially what I'm saying. That right. Whatever In this case, pat- the cost may be the energy required to produce that sound in the vocal cord. Yeah. Or it, it could be other kinds of cost. It could be energy, it could be... Yeah, it could be the computational time. Computational complexity. Yeah, yeah so, so there are... Yeah, so you need some cost function and somehow how expensive it is to produce that pattern uh-huh. informs you about how likely you are to see that pattern. Yeah. Right? So something that's completely random is in fact you it's not very hard for you to find complete randomness uh-huh. it's more expensive to produce something like all zeros because it has some symmetry and it's more expensive to produce something that's even more richer and has lots of uh, you know what we would call structure within it yeah but in by 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 that token at, again at a high level the universe the universe should have lesser order because producing any kind of order needs some kind of expense Yes. Uh, so, if we had assumed that the universe started off, you know, at a stage where everything was random, mm-hmm. then yeah, you wouldn't expect to see anything else emerge out of that. Right. But because the universe started in a very low entropy state, and because it led to systems that were sort of capable of uh, stabilizing their own because they had some structure that was helping that structure stabilize right some kind of self-replication yeah that uh, that makes a difference yeah
Coming back to this question you posed about why some symmetries are more common yes. in nature or in the world. Yeah. Translation and rotation are two of the most fundamental transformations. You can, translation can be viewed as a transformation. You take an object and then you move it. You take an object and you rotate it. What is translation? Translation is just shift in space. Mm-hmm. So I can take this book and I can move it in a northeasterly direction by five feet. That's translation. And the other one is rotation. So there is a fundamental theorem that every uh, rigid motion can be explained in terms of translations and rotations. Right. Now, between which, the which two... Which theorem is this? I mean, this is, this this like is a, a mathematical theorem. I mean, oh. this is rigid motion. That means the relative position of the object that is being moved doesn't change. Sure. So it's, you can either translate and then you rotate. Sure. Now, between the two, the distinction is that translation is typically has no bounds. It's infinite. I mean, so you can, unless the set itself is finite, you can go on, you can shift by 10 units, you can shift by 100 units, you can shift by a million units. Sure. The thing about rotation is... That it's bound on it's itself. It's bounded. It's yeah. bounded by, what, 360 degrees or 2 pi or whatever is your Correct. thing. So, rotation is, is bounded and therefore there is more symmetry built into rotation. So, even if you take a snowflake... That's a beautiful point. So, if you take a snowflake, it doesn't it doesn't have rotation through every angle theta, but there are enough number of angles theta through which if you rotate a snowflake, you get back the same snowflake. Yeah. So rotational symmetry is something... It's a circular operation. You correct. get back so to... So rotational symmetry is something that is very fundamental in nature. Another way to think about it is that we talked about optimization. So nature, for example, chooses the lowest position for the center of gravity. Mm-hmm. One nice thing about the circle is, assuming that it's a uniform plate, is that its center remains invariant no matter how you move it on a plane. Right. Therefore, one doesn't have to worry about the center of gravity changing. Right. So there are a variety of properties that involve symmetries that makes nature select certain objects because of the symmetries that are inherent in it. This is why group theory... Uh-huh which is really the mathematical study of symmetries, uh-huh. is perhaps one of the most useful subjects. It comes up in crystal structure in chemistry. It comes up in elementary particle physics and quantum mechanics. And so, What would be, this is such a beautiful point, Professor Ladi, what would be analogies of translation and rotation? I, I think you've explained it beautifully, so one gets it. Uh, analogy, but, well, translation is like addition. When you translate something by... So let us say I take an object and I move it... I think it, the, the more difficult question there is of rotation. Yeah, yeah, I'm coming. So that's <laughs> rotation is much more difficult. So translation, if I take an object and move it, let us say, in a northeasterly direction by two units, uh-huh. it means I, as a vector, I have added, added two, two comma two to whatever I originally have. Every point on that object, the coordinates have been... You add two comma two. Both on the so X it's and sort of like addition, but you can yes. go on doing it. Now, rotation is not, it is sort of like multiplication, but again, with this condition that there is this restriction. But multiplication is not circular, so... uh. Well, it is in the complex numbers, and that's where (laughs) the complex numbers... When you multiply two complex numbers, Uh. what you're really doing is that you are multiplying their distance from the origin, but the angle, so each complex number has an angle. Yes. That angle, you actually add. So, multiplication of complex numbers 
brings together both the addition and the multiplication operation mm. when you multiply two complex numbers you're multiplying their absolute values but you're adding their arguments so both are involved and that mm. is why through complex numbers you can understand the structure much better mm. including rotation mm. you understand it through complex numbers much better than through real numbers once and this again means abstraction right people don't accept complex numbers square root of minus 1 and so on but that is what actually gives the completeness of the structure of numbers so mm. yeah so one thing that i was so you spoke about group theory and uh, the role it plays in symmetries the curious thing is as computer scientists we are also very interested in symmetries but somehow we haven't found a way to use group theory so much within computer science at all and why do you think that might be and or how could one i don't know I, mean, i can't answer, answer the question why you have not used it yet one can only answer why something was used because in the future there might be some other instance or situation where this use could come in but i can tell you the other thing is that computer science has been used in group theory so one of the uh, as what well, there is a very active branch of group theory which is actually computational group theory where you want to uh, talk about the number of generators of a group and things of this sort so there is a lot of interplay in that aspect um generally speaking applications come much later because we first uh, appreciate a pattern we understand the structure and we create a grand mathematical theory right usually uh, such a beautiful theory cannot go without consequence but it may take time right before the consequences are actually found so for example non euclidean geometry was found by casting away Euclid's axiom the parallel postulate yeah by Bolyai and Lobachevsky but it took decades before Einstein put it to use in in the theory of uh, relativity yeah similarly prime numbers have been since greek Even antiquity but it's only that. recently that it has found applications in cryptography and things of that sort so applications very often come later but um uh, oh, that's a, that's a great point the, i think one one interesting question avinash is that when we think of randomness when obviously things of the physical realm or the realm of numbers is there what is the meaning of random in the linguistic context is there such a thing as random at all um because clearly the very fact that one is using languages or one is using it in a linguistic context means that it comes with an embedded notion of meaning which which yes. obviously chucks it away but but uh, again language is a living thing it's not it's not a frozen fixed thing right um, so language is in transition yeah right so uh, it is moving from one uh, system of invariance to another yeah so often it happens that uh, uh you may you may observe a language in its transition actually you always observe language in its transition it's always wip right so when you're observing language in transition you may often get patterns uh-huh which cannot or you may ob- get observations which cannot be reduced to either system a or system b but the question is are all patterns transitory in the context of a language yes are they all transitory because languages are changing every second but again there has to be something which is invariant over a 10000 year history of a language yes uh, so uh, so then you observe patterns of change patterns of patterns mm you see patterns can exist so if a language has a subject verb object character or structure that would stay the same 
Now they might be not other... necessarily. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, and a uh, language uh, with subject verb object, with over a period of time, be convert into a language with subject object verb. Oh. For example, uh, we now know for sure that English and Sanskrit or English and Marathi mm-hmm. have a shared ancestry. Mm-hmm. English That's, and Marathi. Yes. Okay. They have a shared ancestry. Uh, which we can project th- thousands of years before sure not in the sense that uh, you know um, both have been derived from sanskrit or what whatever the shared ancestry is something which we can uh, project but we do not know about sure we do not have evidence sure but given some uh, linguistic tools we can project which is what we call as proto indo european sure so proto indo european uh, has given rise to two sets of languages one is subject verb object and other is subject object verb so that itself tells us right so there's a fission of sort they them there's there's you, yes. you take a fork on the road you go in two different directions yes, that's yes yes so languages change and the point is that the, the you can observe patterns in change too yeah so there is cyclicity in change it's not that language changes for good yeah yeah why don't we spend the last few minutes just thinking about the future and the future of uh, what so I mean, clearly you just mentioned avinash that at least in most contexts in the context of language most patterns are transitory um if we were to think of it in your context manoj what is the future what's the future of patterns what's the future of patterns in the context of computers computer science is there likely to be one master program which is creating all of this yeah so somehow answering this question of uh, beauty right of what is a pattern and what patterns are more likely than other patterns uh-huh. turns out to be at least in my opinion and opinion of several other computer scientists at the heart of the question of artificial intelligence okay because somehow when you're looking for a good artificial intelligence program uh-huh. uh it's exactly this kind of problem that it ends up having to solve it ends up having to make these kind of aesthetic judgments or these kind of inference problems right if i have seen something what is most likely to have produced what i saw right right what does it imply yeah what no what not what what does it imply but not what from, gave not rise to it senses, yeah so the backwards the, it's yes. the inverse problem right yeah so implication is in the forward direction it's a it's a sure. deduction but this is uh, induction sure yeah so this is the problem of induction it's a philosophical problem that has bothered us for many years and i think it's at the heart of uh, the question of artificial intelligence i think it's at the heart of uh, all of statistics i think well, and where does your instinct lie on on hard ai versus soft ai versus somewhat scrappy you think all of what we see around us the universe uh, and of course ai is more human endeavor um, what is your take on the future of ai 10000 years out 1000 years out 500 years out oh no i don't dare to think that far in the future I'm very excited about where we are right now because I think we are in an epoch in history where uh we are in a position to actually you know ask these very fundamental philosophical questions and maybe even make some progress towards them. Mm-hmm. So yeah so I'm very excited about that. Sure. <laughs> Professor Ladi do you think of numbers and in specific prime numbers as mysterious after all these years of having worked in them uh, or so is... the last um few years Hmm. have actually produced dramatic progress in our understanding of certain very deep problems involving primes such as the prime gap problem mm-hmm. large gap small gaps 
But in spite of this progress, there are fundamental questions that still remain and probably will remain unsolved for a long time. But this is not to be treated as a calamity because basically what happens in mathematics is that there are these fundamental questions which we cannot resolve, at least right away, and the effort to understand why these cannot be resolved or why uh, to understand these, these questions has actually led to new theories. So let me just give one example of Fermat's last theorem. Yes. That basically, to a layman, is... If is uh, something totally uninteresting or useless because it just says that certain classes of equations have no solutions. Yeah. Why would that be of any interest or consequence? Yeah. It is of interest to say certain class of equations have solutions and to find algorithms. <laughs> this has no solution, so why even study? Yeah. But the point is that the effort to prove that this class of equations have no solutions Produces actually created results. a vast theory which has major consequences. It turned out to be the confluence of elliptic curve theory with Galois this theory. This is Andrew Wiles. Yes, and yeah. so on. Yeah. And that is now you know, uh, responsible for enormous progress in algebraic number theory and in algebraic geometry. In fact, created this field of arithmetic geometry is, is coming in. So, sure. so, sure. It, so this is on the one side. But then on the other uh, side... Physics is getting very, very complex. So, for example, superstring theory was introduced. But to understand superstrings, mathematics had to be developed. Yeah. And in fact, Edward Witten got the Fields Medal. Yes. <laughs> He's yet to get the Nobel Prize, but he got the Fields Medal because the mathematics that underlies this theory of superstrings has turned out to be of great consequence, whether or not the physical aspects are still there. So... Great progress in mathematics is what also... What is an intuition about language? Do you think, of course, it is it is this beautiful, complex, maddeningly human thing, at least in the context of human beings, for example. Is it likely that there is a purely computational or purely mathematical basis for all, all the language that we see around us? The human language. Uh, it has been studied mathematically. That's fine, but yeah, I, I think uh, one, one, one is talking of it in a very strict your bottoms-up sense. Is there likely to be a program which is essentially creating the language? So, if the program were large enough to, you know, include all the human beings who have spoken language and their lifetimes, then, you know, sort, sort of becomes a tautology that, yes, yes, there is such a program. But the scale of such a program is so vast that the mind boggles at trying to, you know, even think of such a thing. Also, language has some nuances, which I think uh, an axiomatic set may not be able to accommodate, because there are these exceptions to the rule. There is this. Well, there are so nuances on. till you know that they are actually rules, or they are they are they are they have a theoretical basis. Um, I'm sure there have been nuances in the past which turn out to be non-nuances, and vice versa. So, but that's take uh, poetry, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes a poetic sentence, which is so beautiful may not be grammatically correct, but now that we have begun to appreciate that poetry, we understand that particular usage and therefore we accept it. Yeah. So it, it can happen that we, are, we see the beauty in the poem or the poetry, even though it doesn't fit. Which kind of links to the of logical and plausible point in a different kind of way that Avinash was talking about. But yeah, I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.